This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. Tofu Steve, and welcome to the episode. In this episode, we hear from Oz and Keith, also known as Lonely Vegan. We consider the effectiveness of sharing undercover investigation footage on social media, as well as the emotional cost which can lead to burnout. We hear about the corruption of farm industry regulators, issues with the activist identity, and how anger can be a motivating factor, but also a detriment to activism. We reflect on the current state of the movement and the importance of knowing the history as we learn to move forward. If you want to start then by giving us an introduction to your activism. As in how we got into investigations. Yep, could do. Well, that only started, uh, I'd say, seven, eight months ago. And I was just fed up with feeling like I wasn't doing enough. I didn't feel like, well, we both didn't feel like street activism was enough. And I just really wanted to uh, see these places for myself. We both did. We wanted to see them for ourselves and not just rely Mm -hmm. on what these documentaries were telling us Mm -hmm. uh, about what these places were like. And I also... I keep saying I, we, we both Mm -hmm. wanted to know if they were as bad as what we were being told on documentaries, if it was like this across the board, or if it was just the worst case scenarios that were being put into these documentaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was becoming clear pretty fast that the government are never going to tell us the truth about what these places are like and how they operate. DEFRA are never going to do that. And it was just really obvious that we were being lied to, like the red tractor, Mm. all of the stuff surrounding that. I just knew they were lying. Mm. So I just wanted to see for myself. And uh, Mm -hmm. sure enough, they're all the same. (laughs) And, you know, Britain really likes to say, oh, you know, we are the world leaders in animal welfare. Are you fuck? It's just as bad. Can I swear? I won't swear too much. Yes. No, no, I swear as much as you like. Yeah. <laughs> Say as many fucks as you like. Yeah. Yeah. You keep hearing this from DEFRA and the government that we are the world leaders in animal welfare. Um, mm. And it's not true. It's all mm. the same. It's all shit. Um, mm. And I think what really shocked me as well, the adverts for Red Tractor sort of give off the impression that that is like the very best of the best. But actually, when you research into this, Red Tractor is the bare minimum, bare minimum requirements. Did you know that? No, I actually thought, well, I I kind of imagined that there would be like some organic farms that were probably much better than Red Tractor. But generally, I thought Red Tractor was, I know it's the industry standard, but I didn't, yeah. It's it's only one step up from, uh, they were like, I'm sorry, I don't remember them all. Exactly. There's right at the bottom is um, like the worst, and then it's Red Tractor, one up from that. Mm. So Red Tractor is basically the very, very minimum that farmers have to adhere to. Mm. 
Mm. But they've advertised it in a way that makes you believe that it's the very best. So they put a lot of money into creating this illusion. The red tractor is the very best. And it's still optional, isn't it? Like farms can opt to be part of the red tractor scheme. Mm -hmm. That's why you get the impression that it's like the best. Yeah. So it's almost like, oh, these farmers have really gone out of their way to go get all of this certification. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, it's literally the bare minimum. They they don't have to do much. Mm. Here's the messed up thing about Red Tractor. It's run by farmers. So farmers sort of come on to another farmer's farm and we'll be like, yep, 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 yep. There's your Red Tractor certificate. Mm. It's the industry regulating itself. Yeah, that's another reason we can't um, believe what they're saying to us or trust them. If they're regulating themselves, who's regulating the regulator? Hmm. Yeah. So that would be that would be Defra, wouldn't it? And Defra have a vested interest for farmers. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so a lot of the people on the Defra panel are farmers. So Lord Gardner of Kimball, George Eustace um have their own farms mm. and also benefit greatly which we'll go into later they benefit greatly from those um cap payments the common agricultural policy so they get a hell of a lot of money mm. uh from the taxpayer uh for owning farmland mm-hmm. yeah we'll, we'll come back to that so i just want to go back a step getting into investigations Mm-hmm. Was there any kind of framework or inspiration that kind of acted as a guide for you on how to go about that? No, no. Um, that's the one thing. Like, I, I um, really wish I'd taken a little bit more time about. So, well. Mm. We were at, not we, that was, it was me. I was looking at people in our movement, the wrong people. Um, and I thought, oh, this is how we do it. This is how it's done. Mm-hmm. And they were not the right people to be looking at. But I didn't know any better. Security culture was bad. Mm. Wasn't taught anything about that. Didn't know who to look to for that. I didn't really have any friends in the animal rights movement at that point. Mm. I didn't really know anyone. I just knew I wanted to go on there, get the footage and Mm -hmm. document. So no, the answer for that is no. Um, But but now I do know what I should have done. Yeah. And that goes back to rushing into it as well. I wish we hadn't. Mm. So the last couple of years, maybe there's been kind of quite, um, I want to use the word trend, but it's not, well, it kind of is that, but it's kind of not. But uh, there's been a lot more people who have taken it upon themselves, whether probably in small groups mostly, to do this kind of um, going into places to document the conditions. Mm -hmm. Whereas before maybe it was uh, like some of the bigger organizations would have investigators that were kind of used to doing this and would do it on behalf of the organization, you know, so it was Mm -hmm. kind of a bit more planned out and and that kind of thing. And then obviously through social media and stuff like that, we were able to, um, people are able to kind of start doing that themselves. And it became a thing that people would start to share this kind of content to expose what's going on and I guess to inspire other people to do that as well. So on reflection then, do you think that 
if there's other people out there themselves doing this sort of thing right now, is that still a useful thing or should it be more kind of, I don't want to say professionalized even because people shouldn't be paid for it, but you know, should we leave it to a select few or should, should we all be, if we want to be doing this kind of thing? I don't think we should all be doing it. And I used to think that was the way I used to think, oh, well, you know, if I'm putting this online and people can see that just regular people can do this, then it will inspire mm -hmm. others to do it. But actually, all that's going to happen from that is that you're going to get a load of activists with good intentions running around mm -hmm. documenting farms, not being professional, as you said about it, and mm -hmm. um, being quite sloppy about it and all that's going to happen is these farms are just all going to go into lockdown and mm -hmm. what you really want is to make sure that you're doing this properly carefully and over a long period of time as well not just rushing in to get footage and then just popping it online mm -hmm. uh, yeah i used to think that was the way to go to inspire people to do it but could you imagine if we just had loads of activists running around doing this? Like the farms are just like going to lockdown. Simple as that. And then what? Mm. We'll never be able to get the truth. Yeah. And I guess the industry would really put pressure on the police to start taking action as well. So mm -hmm. the police would then start looking to crack down as well. And we've already seen recently in the UK, um, the last few months, that there's been a drive by kind of the top elements of the police to make any kind of activism marked as extreme anyway, even things like Extinction Rebellion, which is civil disobedience. Greenpeace as well. And, 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 yeah, and, you know, so I can't imagine it would go a good way, but we still need to be exposing this stuff, but um, we need to be really careful about how we go about doing it also i think it's is important to expose these places i think a smart thing to do is to expose in a way that i know someone i don't know if they want to be named so i'm not going to do it but they mm. the way they take photos and document is it shows you so much but it shows you so little at the same time and mm. so there's absolutely no way for the authorities to know where that photo has been taken so they can't say to that farm listen activists have been here and documented up your security mm. i think that's really smart and something mm -hmm. i wish i'd done so mm -hmm. yeah i think that's just advice i would give is just you know take photos and document that shows you a lot but shows you very little that would uh, mm -hmm. give away where you've been mm. And another thing kind of along those lines is a lot of the content that people have got hold of, they've shared on social media in the hopes mm -hmm. that this kind of stuff would be picked up by the mainstream and non-vegans would see it and so on. What are your thoughts on how do we get into the mainstream media and get people who aren't already vegan to start? seeing this this footage okay so i think social media is an echo chamber so i don't believe anymore that when we put out videos and footage 
that it's reaching loads of non-vegans that are going to look at it and go, shit, this is awful. I need to make a change. It's just being circulated amongst vegans. And yeah, it might reach a handful of non-vegans. I have seen non-vegans comment and go, oh my God, like I had no idea this was happening or whatever. Yeah. But I don't believe that social media is this super effective tool that we're being told to help non-vegans go vegan because no one in their spare time that isn't vegan is going to go looking up for pages like ours to be traumatized mm. do you know what i mean no mm-hmm. one wants to do that mm-hmm. on their day off and no one's going to voluntarily do that and even if we they accidentally come across it they're just going to click away from it mm-hmm. so i think the way is from a top down i think then i think this footage could be really helpful as part of like a targeted campaign so it makes up part of a campaign it's like once you've got hold of this investigation footage and you actually do something with it that you've planned Mm -hmm. to be able to get it out there and recognized um by the media and so there's a public conversation because if we're not having a public conversation it's kind of pointless yeah i agree I think it's good to have a big bank of that footage to use appropriately. So I think what we need to do is, I I, I don't know if you agree with this. Mm-hmm. I just think that people are too apathetic in general, too selfish and too stuck in their own ways and too distracted. The, our world is set up to keep people distracted mm-hmm. and agitated and just tired from doing a nine-to-five job to even give a shit about looking into this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't believe that like, when you show people this footage that the majority of them are going to go, oh, shit, I'm going to change. They're not. They'll mm-hmm. get upset and then probably go back to how it was. I think it needs to be from a government level and it needs to be law that we shouldn't be harming, eating, using, exploiting animals in any way. Mm-hmm. And that's when we use the investigation footage and that when, when we when we involve the politics of it, not just throwing it on social media and expecting those non-vegans to see it and boom, the world's gonna go vegan person by person. Mm-hmm. So in terms of political solutions then, what do you think we can do, perhaps specifically in the UK, but maybe generally elsewhere as well, in terms of political solutions? I <laughs> honestly, <a> question. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> what can we do? Uh, Give me the answer. Yeah. I honestly don't have the answer for that yet, only because I listened to your podcast not long ago with Vegan Batgirl, which blew my mind. And that was the first time I realized that the supply and demand situation, it's rigged, so it's not working. And so I I haven't had long to really digest that. All I know is that, yes, food is political. And what we're missing is the key to all of this is lobbying. And... uh, I don't know how we would start to go about doing that yet. <laughs> it is something mm. that I, I really want to look into. But I I think nothing is going to change until we have a voice and a platform inside government 
until we have our own lobbying group. Mm-hmm. From listening to your podcast, because Vegan Batgirl focuses on the politics of food in the USA. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look at it in the UK and it's absolutely fucked. It's so mm-hmm. corrupt, it's unreal. And I just don't know how we would dismantle that. Yeah, so <laughs> how to get around the corruption? Because to me, I just think that governments are inherently corrupt. Of course. And will always, will always make business deals with the biggest players and the meat industry has mm-hmm. been a big player. So meat industry, oil and pharma have been other, like the key players in all of this. Mm-hmm. And the bankers, I guess, because they finance it of all. Of course, yeah. What were your findings then in terms of like DEFRA <laughs> and the cap payments and stuff like that? Okay, so the way it works over here and in Europe is what we have is a common agricultural policy or cap system. And what is messed up about that is what it does is it uses our tax money to basically pay out large sums of money to wealthy landowners. It doesn't benefit so much smaller landowners so you know small holdings and smaller farms which is why and vegan batgirl said this which is why you see a lot of smaller farms going bust and then you see people like joey and you know james aspie and all that going oh your veganism's winning look like this small farms closed down and Mm. it's like well no it's just because they're not getting the benefits that the larger farms are getting so what essentially this system props up mega farms Mm -hmm. and so the smaller farms are going out of business so actually we're not winning it just shows us that mega farms are growing Mm. so here's where it gets really messed up when we talk about all the mps in government and how they benefit from this Mm -hmm. so ian duncan smith he cut all benefits for the poor massively made cuts Mm -hmm while he reaps 1.5 million pounds worth of cap payments between Mm. 2003 and 2013. That's our tax money. And so so does he get that because he's a landowner himself? Yeah. Yeah. So while he cuts the benefits for the poor, Mm. he's receiving large amounts of our tax money because he's already a wealthy landowner. Mm. So, I mean, it gets worse. Mm -hmm. So let's have a look here. So the 18th Duke of Norfolk got £473,000 in cap payments Mm. because he's a wealthy landowner. MP Richard Drax got £411K. Mm -hmm. Then there's Lord Gardner of Kimball. He's on the DEFRA panel, by the way. He oversees biosecurity. He's a, a, a landowner and he runs a farm. And in 2015, he got £49,000. Just a little side note, though, he's actually an honorary member of the Kimball Wick Super Hunt. Mm-hmm. And that hunt is infamous because they've been accused of spreading bovine tuberculosis uh, via their hounds that run across all the farmland. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, though, because he's head of biosecurity. Yeah. So I'll just finish this bit off here. We've got Dame Helen Gosh. 
she has 250,000 hectares of land. She got 11 million pounds in one year in cap payments. Hmm. One fifth of the biggest cap payment recipients are in the top 100 rich list. They got 11.2 million of our tax money and 16 members are of aristocracy and they got 7.1 million. And then there's Sir James Dyson, who's a billionaire. He's worth oh, 7.8 yeah. billion. And he got sure. 1.6 million of our tax money in 2016. And it, it just, mm. the list goes on and on and on. But just one last thing to add. Mm-hmm. The other messed up thing about the way this system works is oligarchs, sheiks, Texas oil tycoons, they own a lot of land in our country. Mm-hmm. And because they own this land, they also receive our tax money in cap payments but they don't even have to live here mm-hmm. to get that money. So they're all kicking it in their mansions, wherever they are, from our tax money, while our government guts out our NHS, our mental health services. And then Boris Johnson has the gall to stand up on his little podium that says, protect our NHS. Mm. Well, our NHS is failing because you're giving all of our tax money to your rich fucking friends because they own loads mm. of land pisses me right off yeah so where i stand on the political lobbying thing is i come from an anarchist perspective where i think that the state can't be reformed and um so appealing to the state to you know do the right thing like Mm -hmm. extinction rebellion and animal rebellion do is not going to work. So I think we need to build alternatives. But I actually agree with that. Yeah, because like and from what you've just said about how rotten it is, you know, these people are not going to give up what they've got. They're not they're always going to be landowners. They're they're not going to be made to do the right thing. They're not going to have an interest in getting rid of the animal farming that they're involved in and reg tractor is the industry body we know that that's run by the industry itself and defra mm-hmm. monitors it and we know that mm-hmm. defra is full of um the same type of people with the same interests so i don't think that there's um a case for expending energy on that I actually agree, and I never actually thought of that. But now that I have, that makes, yeah, you're right. So the answer is toppling governments and capitalism. mm. So, yeah, that's, I agree. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How do we do this? Yeah. (laughs) So, so. That's a yeah. That's a tougher. That's th- that is the question though, and that's why I say it's for me. It's about um, prefigurative politics, which means we have to build our own institutions based in the values that we believe in, yeah. and that will change how people interact with and see the world. So that's the kind of work that I think we should be putting our energies into. I agree. Hmm. And in a way, kind of consumer change does come into that, but we need to we need to people to stop thinking of themselves as consumers and thinking of themselves as like citizens and not citizens of the state either, but just, you know, 
communities again. I think yeah. people who, who yeah. don't need to be told what to do by men in suits. I agree. What's your thoughts then on how we present ourselves as activists and is there an issue with the vegan identity? So I completely agree with the way arts is going and I understand um, how angry people are going at, how things aren't changing, but I feel like um, we definitely need to remain calm. I feel like we've done a, we gain, we've done a benefit from that because we're going to be able to uh, engage with people more. Mm -hmm. So do you think then, because in recent years, there's been like the kind of militant aesthetic has made a comeback, I guess. Um, and there's like people with masks and balaclavas. And Someone's militant. That's Alfred. You don't like to be stepped on. One of the dog steps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think then that that image of like the militant vegan is something we should try to avoid? Yeah, I think for each individual who is, is watching that and observing um, vegan people, um, it works differently for each people. I think people who mm. have undergone trauma in the past, they're more likely to listen to a militant vegan and someone shouting about what's going on mm. um, and also you you have different people who they don't they don't respond to that very well they put the guard up straight away um, mm. they don't want to hear what you have to say and I feel like mm. um, me myself I feel like I've had engagement um, with people where I've been very calm and open about talking about veganism and uh, took my time mm -hmm. with him um, mm -hmm. and I felt that that's worked pretty well as well because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand how in depth um, the problem is how mm -hmm. even has as a meat eater it affects them too mm. yeah and that's a like a very different approach to the one that has become like the mainstream outreach approach, especially the likes of groups like AV, who just seem to focus more and more on like um, just telling people their shit, basically, and like apparently holding them to account, but um, using like guilt tactics to make them feel bad because that's apparently the only way that's going to get people to change and it's become like a very kind of misanthropic and um you know uh very aggressive uh like um conversations and obviously joey carbstrong's another one this kind of very uh, full of attitude angry vegan thing seems to be the current uh trend amongst a lot of activists yeah and like i think i think that there is like an area where that that does change some people so i guess if someone was to approach us in that in that way um she's more likely to consider um what's happening she's very response 
responsive to um, like oppression, aggression, aggression, mm-hmm. oppression um, mm-hmm. all these things which um, she's been through herself. She's more likely mm-hmm. to see that. I think people mm-hmm. of privilege who's never experienced any anger towards them, uh, they mm-hmm. instantly put their hand up and they don't want to hear it. They just walk away from the situation. So yeah, as you see from a YouTube point of view where they will show the success stories where someone has listened, there'll be loads of cases where someone's walked away from that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because in recent videos as well, they've been kind of, when people walk away from the conversation, the activists have been hailing it as a success. Like yeah. the, the truth was, the truth was so much to handle. The person just left the conversation. So it's like, I don't really think that's a win, uh, yeah. but it's being sold as a win, which is weird. You know, it's like obviously yeah. not a win. <laughs> yeah, you you definitely have to to find an, an engaging conversation, and if mm. your tactic isn't working, you have to uh, adapt to that person. Mm. You have to understand that you're going wrong and i think you should be fluid in the way you try to talk to people mm-hmm. as soon as you understand that that tactic isn't working you need to come down to their level and have a conversation which they will understand yeah totally um and also there's this there's a whole um kind of storytelling that they do about um people going vegan on the spots you know i've seen like things like saying these people like turned vegan in 60 seconds at a cube or whatever and i think the thing about going vegan on the spot is misleading as well because i mean we've all come to the decision in different ways and it's all taken us different lengths of time and it's some people take kind of a stepped approach some people maybe do just make the decision seems overnight but there's been a lot of maybe thought and exposure to different things before that definitely like me myself i'm guilty of probably presuming i went vegan overnight because i chose the moment i went vegan Mm. um but throughout my life i was exposed to um video footage for horrific things i knew about slaughterhouses i've seen all this stuff but I didn't make that change at that point and I chose my time mm. to make that change. And then I think the problem is when you become vegan, you choose the time when you went vegan overnight. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have their, like their vegan anniversary and they remember when, yeah. Like did the day they went vegan however many years ago, whatever, which is, yeah, I don't think it happens for anyone just overnight. Like, like we like to think so, but. Literally for me, like I, I was never vegetarian at any point. I went through spells where I've seen, um, horrible things. I've walked Mm. away from it and I think it was kind of culture and, um, people giving me the wrong information about nutrition, but it's bad for you to go vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, I started to learn how misinformed I was. And then it took that little push, push over the hedge where uh, I watch Earthlings and okay. it really, it really got to me. And 
um, yeah, a change from then. Mm-hmm. So do you think that anger then is an emotion that we can use in a positive way or is it always going to be like have negative uh, consequences in our activism? So yeah, I think from my point of view, it's positive in a personal way. So if you use anger as a drive to make a positive impact, I think that's definitely the way to go. Mm. Use your anger to do a positive thing. Mm. Um, I believe that using anger when shouting at people and chasing people down the street, telling them that they're wrong. It might work for some people, but I don't think it's going to work for the majority of people who are are quite privileged and they don't want to hear that. Mm. Yeah, I I am sure. (laughs) It's bizarre that that seems to become like the thing to do. And I don't think anyone's checked and done research to find out if that actually works. I feel, well, it happens because obviously the things what we have seen, they're so traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Me and us, we sleep on what we've seen the night before. Horrendous things. It builds up anger with inside you and you just want to take action. But at some point, I feel like you need to ground yourself and see what's going to make a positive change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's your thoughts then on um, anger generally being used in activism, positive or negative? Uh, So like you said, I think anger is really good to drive you to get out there and do something. But I don't think it's good to use it when interacting with people. So used to be a really big fan of Gary Urofsky and just hung on every word that he said. I just liked his aggressive approach when when speaking on behalf of animals to people. Mm-hmm. But I look back at that footage now and I, I shudder. It's, it's embarrassing because while I agree with not everything that he says, but while I agree with some of the stuff that he says, mm-hmm. and I do like the passion that he has for animals, and I, I think his anger is justified, you've got to think about, who are the people that are taking on board what he's saying now i might be wrong but i think he's probably reaching people like myself that have been traumatized so you know i was brought up in a in a household where there was a lot of aggression and even the way i was spoken to or my parents spoke to each other was it was aggressive all the time and so mm-hmm. i respond to that I respond to that kind of way of being spoken to. Whereas when you look at Keith and how he responds, he wasn't brought up in that environment. You know, he was spoken to with respect and he wasn't brought up around aggression. And I remember him watching this documentary and he's like, who is this dickhead? Mm -hmm. He agreed with what he was saying about how we shouldn't be exploiting animals. He didn't, Mm He agreed with all of that, but he was saying the way that he speaks is such a turnoff and he sort of exemplifies everything what people think about vegans. Yeah, I mean, I think that's when we start getting into like misanthropy, you know, he's obviously Mm -hmm. well known for saying he hates humans, all humans, etc. 
and then he sort of singles out certain groups of humans because he's actually like racist but like if our goal is to change people's minds and bring them into our like our our philosophical worldview then you're not going to do it by telling them you just hate people and mm. and being so incredibly angry at people like mm -hmm. i don't think that's going to be like i think keith was saying you know some people like it connects with but like i that's always going to be a minority really you've got to also think about the people that listen to him so like myself that turn vegan because you'll hear people say he's turned the most people vegan right mm. okay mm. well let's just say that's true how are they turning out as vegans because i was a piece of shit <laughs> when i first was vegan and when I say that, I, I was just so inconsiderate. I, I didn't, I was inconsiderate in my approach. I was aggressive. I didn't have any consideration for how my words may have affected people. Uh, mm. Just a very narrow-minded approach to my activism. So yeah, let's just say he's turned a bunch of people vegan. What kind of vegans are they? That's the question you want to be asking. Yeah, that's it. So there's often that claim, which is also not really very well backed up, that he's mm. created the most vegans ever. And it's like, yeah, one of the problems with the vegan movement is that we've we've created the wrong type of vegans. Vegans who think that absolutely buying like buying KFC options will achieve animal liberation, and mm -hmm. shouting at people in the street will get people to um, be go go vegan. So. I think we're in a, a real mess. And also this whole holding people accountable. Yeah, mm. I get what you're saying. We we should be holding people accountable. But what you've got to bear in mind, Rob Banks actually said this quite well. He was saying that the reason it doesn't work to shame meat eaters, he was explaining why it works to shame people that wear fur, mm -hmm. but it doesn't work to shame people that eat meat. Have you heard this, what he said about it? I haven't. No. It was brilliant, um, but correct mm. me if I'm wrong. What he said was, with fur, we all know from the get-go that it's abhorrent. Mm -hmm. No one ever taught you in school that skinning an animal alive and wearing their fur coat for fashion was cool. We all know it's shit. That's why a lot of meat eaters hate people that wear fur, right? Mm. But with eating meat, that's been so deeply indoctrinated from day one. When I look at, like, the teaching material that I teach my kids it's mm -hmm. like happy rosy cheeked farmers with his happy animals like living really happy on the land mm -hmm. it's indoctrinated right so you you can't go around with that with that same tactic on meat eaters because it's just not the same mm. however once they are aware of the facts and they fully acknowledge that it's terrible I still don't think shaming them is the right way but I, I understand a bit more like holding them to account. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I am not convinced that shaming people who wear fur is at all effective mm -hmm. in getting okay. people to not wear fur. So I don't, I'd like to see if anyone's done any research on it. That would be good. But I think like with everything, it would be more productive to focus on the fur industry than the consumers buying mm -hmm. the fur. And I think also just historically, like 
the image of many people might have of animal rights activists is angry people throwing red paint on yeah. people in fur yeah. coats. And I think yes. we want to kind of, yeah, so like, look, away from that. it would be good to yeah, graduate from that image. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, I've seen some of those um, actions or the by certain people, particularly in New York, chasing people down the street, shouting at them and things. And I think, mm. you know, again, it, it ends up on their social media. So for other vegans to click lots of heart emojis and stuff. So mm. I don't really think, you know, those are those people going to go, you know what, next time I want to buy fur, I'm not going to buy fur. I think the point is, because I used to wear fur. <laughs> so okay. Interesting. I used to wear it. And yeah, mm. I'll go into this in a sec. Uh, mm -hmm. I used to wear fur and I and I remember when it was secondhand fur, not as if it makes a difference, but I sort of convinced myself in my head that, well, it's vintage fur, so the animals already died, so I may as well wear their fur, <laughs> fuck's sake. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't buy new fur because I didn't want to pay into a, a new blooming industry. Okay. It's a load of bollocks. But um, I remember when... Uh, it sort of came about again, the whole fuck fur thing. There was just that atmosphere around. And I was really, really scared to wear my coat. So I stopped wearing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Rob does it. Mm. It's to scare people into, not scare them, sorry, into shame them to the point that they won't dare wear it again. The only problem mm. is it doesn't really change their, their hearts and minds about it. I mm. guess you want them to, to empathize with, what, with what's happening to the animals, not to not wear it because they're too scared to wear it. But mm. they're not wearing it, so <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess mission accomplished. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? I would definitely want to do some more thinking on the fur. I, I've not thought too much on like yeah. anti-fur tactics and mm -hmm. strategies. So it would be good to think about that because um, – yeah, I get that, you know, if people feel they're going to be harassed in the street and mm -hmm. they won't wear the stuff they've got. But I don't know, is the fur industry booming at the minute anyway? Like, are more people wearing fur than – I'm not too sure. Well, I'll tell you something. Um, I live in one of the oh, – one of, like, the poorest areas. <laughs> Mm. one of the not so nice places in the uk right mm. and i cannot get over how many young girls i'm seeing wearing fur trim on their coat so it is booming mm. and it frightens me because fur used to be uh like a, a, a symbol of wealth right so not everyone had access to fur mm. and so when you are seeing these little pom-poms on cheap hats and fur trim on cheap coats and it's real fur because you can really tell the difference mm -hmm. that makes mm -hmm. me question mm. yeah like where are these animals coming from they are farming the shit out of these animals that they're all over cheap coats and hats at this point yeah interesting so it yeah, is zooming. So it's uh, it's everywhere it's steve around here everywhere it's become attainable for everyone now, whereas it used to be just yes. the elites, uh, celebrities that used yeah. to be able to afford it. Yeah, and it's horrible because the fur looks like it's you can really tell like real fur. It, it just the way it flows, and it's just really upsetting to see. Like mm -hmm. it's this beautiful fur trim that should be on an animal, and it's on someone's crappy cheap fucking coat. 
What you said about shaming, though, there is somebody a few doors down from us, and she has about three different Canada goose jackets with the fur trim. Mm -hmm. And we politely stopped her and her husband, and they were proper knobs about it. Mm. And now I will not even acknowledge her or say hi to her when she sort of looks at me to say hi back. And Mm. she doesn't give a fuck. She still wears a fur. So, I mean... so yeah, I don't know if that is the right way. I think if I went up to her and said you're a fucking fur hag, I don't think it would make a difference. Yeah. It would just be like they'd just be like, Well fuck you back, you know, whatever. It's like Yeah. <laughs> Which is essentially what he said to me. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's it's again, it's this thing that it's been so normalized. Mm. You know, we say that like, yeah, I know we've been conditioned to eat meat since like childhood, but like mm-hmm. fur is seems to become even more ingrained in society now as well like you were saying because it's cheap and available yeah mm-hmm. he actually said to us well we eat meat anyway so what's the problem we may as well use mm-hmm. their fur so like all oh, right so this is like the line of logic that people are using yeah yeah um, well, i use that i can i can see that you know it's kind of like what's the difference to them what's the difference So having done investigations and having seen and shared um, a lot of kind of graphic footage online, did that lead to burnouts at all? Yeah. So like, I think the people closest to me will all know that like, well, you know, like mm-hmm. it really, I got really messed up and I can't explain what it was like. It, it wasn't like I... I was sat every day at home crying every day, although there were days I cried. It was more like a like a weird dissociation, just like mm. I can't even explain it. But the way you stop burnout is to be kind to yourself and not keep going back over and over, which is what I did. I kept going back mm. over and over and over and over again. And I wasn't giving my brain any downtime. Mm-hmm. Um, because I got myself to a point where I was like, well, if they're suffering, I need to suffer too. Did guilt play a part when you say you went back and went over and over stuff? Were you thinking, was there something I could have done to help that I didn't or anything like that? No, because I I knew that if there was something I could have done to assist an animal, I had done it and I did assist where I, I could even when you know the financial resources weren't there Mm -hmm. Uh, even when the energy wasn't there or the mental capacity wasn't there i did it It, for me it got to the point where it was to go back to just sit and be with Mm -hmm. so sometimes i go back and we weren't filming Mm -hmm. i just sit in the gangway uh with them with walter actually i used to go back just to sit with him and sit with him and his friend. So, hmm. so, do you think then that that so that played a part in? Maybe would you say that you did burn out at some point, or oh my God, yeah. did you almost? Yeah. You did, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I got really, really sick, just really unwell, and I was, and I, I lashed out at my friends, and mm. you know. Chloe, (laughs) 
hey Chloe. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, I was I was unkind to my fr- to my friends. I didn't give them the time that they needed. I I wasn't giving myself the time that I needed. I lashed out at Keith. Um, I was, uh, you know, wasn't giving my dogs the time that they needed. Uh, mm. So yeah, it affected all areas, and and I nearly lost my job as well because I just mm. wasn't with it. Mm-hmm. Tired all the time and just. Mm. So, I suppose for everyone, the circumstances are always different depending on what they're doing in their activism and so on. But do you have any thoughts on how it could be avoided? Like, how do people get to stop themselves from getting to that point? Now you said they need, you know, downtime, being aware to take care of yourself and stuff like that. But and I know it's different for everyone. I think if I knew the stuff that I know now, knowing that there are other avenues that are actually far more effective than going in and taking footage, I probably wouldn't have felt that need to have to keep going back. Because at the time, I thought that was the that was the way. That was it. Mm-hmm. Like getting the footage was what was going to change things. Mm-hmm. If I knew what I know now, I would have taken a step back. And I wouldn't have felt the need to keep going. So I guess what I would say to people that are thinking of doing investigating or are and are going all the time, Mm. it's important and valuable what you're doing, but it's not, it's not where the change is. And so, yeah, that, I guess, Mm. yeah, if I knew that I probably, I definitely wouldn't have gone over and over and over Mm. and over. For clarification, in the next section, Oz discusses animal rebellion activists dressing as cows. So what are your thoughts then on some of the issues or challenges in the mainstream vegan or animal rights movement at the moment? So I think one thing that I've seen which has really bothered me... Mm-hmm. Which people probably you'll see me kicking off all over Instagram over it a couple of mm-hmm. how long ago was it? Four months, five months ago. Um Animal Rebellion uh mm-hmm. singing to the police. Um mm-hmm. and I never thought of this at the time. So obviously I was angry because I was like, well, let's put this in a human context. If we were if we were marching in the streets wanting to uh, speak up on the behalf of the black community and slavery, imagine if we all were walking down the streets with shackles on our ankles. How do you think that would look? I mean, that's ridiculous. It's it's insulting. It's it's just awful. And mm. yet they're, I don't know, I... That's all I I was thinking at the time. Like, if we do what they're doing and put it in the human context, how offensive that would be. Yeah, and especially, I think if you did, like, if you looked to another movement, like the movements, like, that are happening um, amongst, like, for the liberation of marginalized people, those people are there, you know, protesting for themselves to liberate themselves. So you would never hear them singing to the people that are oppressing them, which is the police are a massive part of. And the police are there at that moment and may possibly turn to violence to stop that protest mm-hmm. at any mm-hmm. at any point they decide to. So why is it then that when we go and 
do protests or marches on behalf of non-human animals, we think it's okay. Because our movement's ignorant as fuck. Mm. Mm-hmm. We're ignorant as fuck, and we're uh, so many. Pe- the majority of our movement refuses to look at human oppression alongside animal, opp- well, non-human oppression. It's mm-hmm. so narrow-minded. When we're seeing it happen now, people saying that intersectionality is poison. I'm like, why is it? Are mm-hmm. you kidding me? Like. How have we got to a point where we think it's bad to fight for both humans and non-humans? I think it's because we get told that it's taking away from the animals by doing so, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's shifting the focus away from the animals, but it's not. Like, if I was able to have a conversation with any one of my dogs right now and explain mm-hmm. to them that their mum and dad are fighting for both humans and their animal brothers and sisters... I think they would much rather that than me saying, I don't give a fuck about humans, but I give a fuck about you guys. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's just like, you know, Keith was saying earlier about people with privilege and, uh, you know, a lot of people and myself are, are as particularly privileged. I think it's that thing that if you have to start acknowledging that, you know, people are oppressed still, then that means you might be in a position of privilege and you would have to start unpacking that privilege and dealing with some mm-hmm. uncomfortable truths mm-hmm. about yourself and doing some self-work. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of much easier to say, well, oh, you know what, I just do the animal thing. Like that's mm-hmm. those human issues. There's other people doing the human issues, you know? Like, let them sort it out. But what you're saying is, if you're coming from that position of privilege is, well, you know, we'll just let, you know, it should be people of color that, like, challenge racism, and it should be women that, like, are feminists, and it should be, you know, but actually it's the people who have the privilege that those people are trying to liberate themselves from who should be doing the yeah. actual work. Yeah, so it should be, the, Yeah, the people dismantling racism, it should be white people. You know, the people dismantling patriarchy, it should be uh, cis men. So yeah, it's just that kind of, that total unwillingness to take on further responsibility, I think. I think if you really, truly love animals the way that you say you do, then you would be willing to make yourself a better person and not be afraid to take on some criticism. Mm-hmm. surely like that's what drives me that's what drives me with this to i and i think mm-hmm. people are afraid um that if they own up to the fact that they've fucked up that people are are going to give them shit for it but mm-hmm. people in this community are actually really nice i i have said to people look if i fuck up with my terminology please dm me and let me know and at first i was really nervous i was like oh my god mm-hmm. i'm going to get people that are going to be really rude about it And I have encountered some people that have been rude to me about it. But the majority of people, 99% of people have been so nice and kind and, and, and really helpful. So I think if you really care about animals, why wouldn't you want to just be and make yourself a better person? So you mentioned then that, um, 
as a movement, we can be quite ignorant. I also think that we don't look back to the past much and learn from what's gone before. So what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so I was I was guilty of this too, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so was I, to be honest. Yeah, I think most of us were. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think the problem is is that the people that we are inspired by are problematic, and then we go from there, and then we forget about history, and that's how we make fuck ups. So, mm-hmm. uh, just before I properly answer the question about the history, I would advise every single person already in activism or thinking of look to your history there's a good book called from dust till dawn by keith mann and i would suggest everybody read that so what a lot of people think is these direct actions these mass actions like dxe meet the victims are like the first of their kind but they're not um so we know of the animal liberation front right and what they did was the animal liberation front were just regular folks like you or me They'd go out, masked up, anonymous at night, uh, just a few people, and they would go liberate or cause some kind of economic damage, what have you, right? Then you had the Animal Liberation Leagues. So you had the Northern Animal Liberation League, and they had a really cool slogan, which was, over the wall when they least expect it. Um, Mm. Then you had the Central Animal, it's cool, isn't it? Um, the central animal liberation league and their slogan was through the doors when they least expect it and there were all these different leagues um all around the country right and Mm. what their role was was to go and do mass actions in farms but mostly in labs and the main objective wasn't to liberate but they would if they could Um, Mm. It was to gather evidence, footage, document. And while Mm. that was all going on, they would have legal protests happening on the outside. Mm -hmm. So exactly the same sort of framework that we're seeing now, Mm. um, but they took place mostly inside labs. Uh, See, I didn't know this until recently. Mm. I... I've not heard of those before. Yeah, that's good. So, but it's so what they've done there is they've they've gone in and got the footage and that kind of thing. But they've also had like a pressure campaign on on yes. you know on the kind of like the legal side of things. So they're they're matching up the two, and I think that's mm-hmm. what we miss at the moment with a lot of these is like kind of we're we're going into farms to get footage, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whether undercover or you know mass walk-ins. But we've not we're not putting the pressure on, you know, from the other side. Yeah, yeah. So we go to the farm, and we do these live streams. The live streams go on social media. They get so circulated through from vegan to vegan to vegan. It might get picked up by a newspaper, not really. Mm. You know, best case scenario, it'll get picked up by the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. But most of the time it just gets picked up by a local newspaper and then it gets Mm. forgotten about. Mm. And then we move on to the next farm. But really, if you were going to do that again, you would go to the same farm over and over. It'd be a pressure Mm. campaign. But that's not what's happening. I don't know. I just think it's a bit sloppy. It's not really it's not really achieving anything. No, I agree. So what would you say then? 
in closing, what would your thoughts be on how we could move forward in the movement? I honestly don't have an answer. All I can say is what I'm doing and what me and Keith are both doing Mm -hmm. is I think at the moment we've taken a step back and we're looking at ourselves individually and how we can be better individually. Mm-hmm. And I think consistent anti-oppression mm-hmm. and really understanding that is the way forward in my opinion, because the movement's a mess at the moment. It's mm-hmm. an absolute mess. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's, that's what, that's what going forward means for me is um, unpacking all of my own problematic behavior and uh, trying to do better and educating myself, learning about our history. And mm-hmm. yeah, so for me, that that's what going forward means. Um, and then after that, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yeah. yet. As it, as it stands, I just don't want to be part of any sort of organization or anything like that. I think for me, animal rights means doing what I can for animals in my own way, individually with Keith and with our close friends. Mm -hmm.